Magic Numbers. This is episode 63. When did it happen? And today we're going to look at the uh, Phyrexia All Will Be One. Uh, and I'm going to look at it from a slightly different perspective. I'm going to look at the mechanics, but not to describe what they do, but rather to try to position different mechanics and uh, try to speculate on strategies uh, that you can apply to uh, to play those um, uh, to play those mechanics and, and how you can play them and what will be successful and not. Obviously, since the set has not been yet released, it's going to be quite speculative, but it's going to be maybe a slight window of how I think about formats, how I formulate plans before I start drafting, because I very often, before I even open a first pack, I have an idea what I want to do, and I have a couple of plans that I will um, start implementing as soon as I see particular cards that trigger a certain response in me. Uh, but before we go into that, uh, this stream is sponsored by MTGA Zone. Uh, so, uh, if you have some time, you want to read some limited content, maybe you're interested in constructed, MTJ Zone is a pretty good place to uh, go. Um, it has really great writers. J2S Josh is writing their limited, uh, limited articles. I think that finally, after a, a long hiatus, I'm going to write uh, this thing up and uh, publish it there, uh, because I think that this is something that can be pretty general and on how to make plans. I like to make my articles more like level ups kind of, uh, style uh, rather than uh, write the current things. Um, but of course, it will be based in the reality of the current set. Um, and before I go into the actual topic, um, I always like to start with the preamble. And we are after yet another preview season. And I think that uh, this is a thought I've been you know, combating for quite some time. It's worth thinking about what you can predict in the new set and where it is better to wait and see. Uh, because of course, especially when you create content, you're sort of paid to have um, hot takes. And, and you know, sometimes those hot takes pay off because you're right. Sometimes those hot takes, well, everyone forgets the wrong ones. Unless they are spectacularly wrong, then, then they, will remind of you, they will remind you that uh, for the rest of your life. But I think that what is worth to think as a content creator and also as a person that just wants to understand the format before it's released is that there are some things that are easier to um, conceptualize dry just in your thought rather than uh, by playing and some that are more difficult. And I think it's it's really difficult to figure out which colors are going to be good. And I don't want to spend too much time on thinking, oh, white is going to be busted or oh, red is going looking like it's going to be poor because those things are very often verified. And I would probably guess that if you would ask content creators um, which colors are the best in a particular set and you will have like a sample of 50 of them, um, and then you will basically look at the answers, uh, ranks, score them, and, and, and then come up with some maths. They would be not much better than uh, if you would do it by random. We are very often blindsided by some mechanics. We are very often too excited about some mechanics because they just appeal to what people want to do. And that doesn't work very well. So instead of doing that, uh, before I start uh, playing in the set, I like to look at the context of every color without actually grading them in any power level. Some of them, I will have no idea how to build them. And if I look at the set and I analyze it and I read a lot of the cards and I try to match them and, and see where the synergies lie, and I still don't see any kind of like solution that's pretty obvious to me, 
Uh, these colors will probably have to wait and be reevaluated. I still have some, you know, very initial idea of what I want to do, but I'd rather check which cards are actually validated by data. And, you know, like data from after one week is usually pretty good in predicting what's going to be happening in the format later. Actually, card power is probably very well predicted by the first week data. It's just that what is open and what is not will change slightly uh, over the time. And sometimes, you know, first week decks are not strong because they contain cards that no one predicted that are going to be strong. But uh, very often, first week decks are really strong because particular card combinations are really open and you can get really powerful cards on the wheel. Later, when you stop having those cards on the wheel or, or late in the pack, you lose that advantage and uh, those decks become a bit weaker because you just don't have access to that many cards. That's why I measure the openness of each color pair uh, in the first weeks of data because uh, that way I, uh, you can you can sort of see how many cards of each color combinations that are powerful you're going to see throughout the draft on average. And that changes quite a lot. But the power of the cards themselves is pretty well validated by the uh, by the first week win rates. Um, right. And again, maybe you will see some obvious bombs and they will be probably very good. Still, they might be a bit weaker because of the color context. So um, also, um, even if the card is super strong, think about is it supported in a way that will you be able to play it in a deck that has ways of winning that is not that bomb? Because obviously that's just one card. You'll draw it roughly 50% of the time when you play. Um, so um, uh, don't put too much weight on uh, black having like three busted bombs if there is no other support for those cards and we'll learn that in the first week. So instead of looking at those kind of color specifics and trying to rank things, what I decided to do is I decided to look at the mechanics of the set and try to think about different plans that you can have for those mechanics and um, using fundamentals, using prior knowledge, using similar things from the past, I tried to figure out how can you maximize those mechanics and where in which colors would you find the best homes for them. And, um, uh, and that will inform my first week of drafting. As soon as we get start getting data, I will also update my preconceptions with the actual solid facts. Uh, right, so all in all be one mechanics, I decided to highlight five of them. There's toxic, toxic being a creature has toxic of X and uh, it means that apart from dealing with damage, when it connects with the player, it also gives them X poison counters. Um, toxic poison counters, obviously, uh, when you have 10 of them, you die and there is no way of removing them. So it's a sort of like a life gain resistant way of killing that actually is um, uh, faster than damage in terms of how much you have to inflict. Uh, second ability is Corrupted. Uh, corrupted, um, it gives a card additional ability or enhances the ability it has um, when opponent has three or more um, poison counters. Uh, third ability is Proliferate, and that means that you can put a counter on any permanent that already has a counter of the same type, obviously. Um, and these three mechanics are sort of connected because, you know, you attack with a toxic creature, it gives a couple of poison counters, then you proliferate, you add another toxic counter on that player, and then your Corrupted is online and you can cast sp spells for a slightly higher value. So they are sort of like linked in a, in a sort of package. And there's going to be a lot of over, uh, overlap between uh, all those mechanics. Then proliferate has many flavors. The other mechanic that we have in the set is oil. Um, and oil are counters on creatures and every single time they do something different. So there's 
I listed six themes of oil in terms of how it works, but there is also multiple themes of oil on how you put the counters on, on the permanent, but they do just different things. It's just like a creature has put an oil counter when this happens, or um, when it enters the battlefield, put oil or put oil on something. And, and that oil will have different abilities. You can remove some oil counters and, uh, um, and something happens. You can add oil counters and the creature becomes better and, and things like that. Uh, again, because oil are counters, proliferate is linked to that because you can proliferate all your oil counters if you want to. Um, so uh, that's another kind of synergy uh, connection. And there's the fifth mechanic for Mirrodin, which is uh, not linked to the other four, uh, specifically in uh, red and white colors uh, most of the time. Uh, and that's just an ability of equipment that when it enters the battlefield, uh, you create a 2-2 creature um, that becomes attached to the equipment. So sort of equipment has something that can wear it and wears it automatically. Um, and then when the thing dies, you can reuse the equipment uh, to equip other creatures. Um, so these are the five mechanics and we can go to the first one, toxic. And toxic creatures have sort of dual nature because they do have power and toughness. Um, power is being more important in that context, but they also can deal poison damage to the player. So, um, both of the aspects are important because power is not only important when it connects, but power is also important when it doesn't. When a creature becomes blocked, it will only deal the damage uh, uh, according to its power. Um, and poison is obviously twice as fast as um, damage. So um, um, because of that, decks that will have toxic creatures might have different plans, uh, depending on how likely are you going to be to deal uh, this, you know, 10 poison damage over the game. And depending on how likely you're going to be to deal the 10 poison uh, damage, uh, you will have to build your deck slightly differently. Um, so to look at the toxic from the data perspective, I looked at what are the stats of the creatures that have toxic in the format. And I divided them into three categories. One is the toxic, more toxic than damage creatures. And um, that means this is a 1-1 creature with toxic one. If it connects, it deals 5% of starting life uh, damage uh, um, in regular damage. But if it connects, it also deals one poison damage, which is 10% of the maximum poison that you have um, uh, before you die. So this creature is more toxic than damage. Uh, this creature kills you twice as fast using the, um, uh, using the poison counters than it does uh, using um, uh, the regular damage. So these creatures I call tox more toxic than damage. Then there are creatures that have exactly the same. So this is a 2-2 that, that has toxic one. If it connects, it deals two damage to the player and it deals um, one poison counter. So 10% of starting life and damage and 10% of maximum poison in poison damage. So they are equally as toxic as damage. And the third category are creatures that um, have more regular damage than poison. So uh, here I have an example of indoctrination uh, attendant. That's a four mana three, four and it has toxic one. So if this creature connects, it deals three damage, so 15% of starting life uh, in damage, and it deals one uh, poison counter, which is 10% of the max poison counter. So uh, it's slightly more uh, on the damage side than toxic, therefore category is more damage than toxic. Uh, and I did calculation for those, uh, um, for all the creatures in the format, um, and I found that actually roughly 50% of all the creatures um, are more toxic than damage. All creatures with toxic, obviously. Um, 
So uh, majority of uh, commons and uncommons will have um, more toxic than damage. Uh, quite a large chunk of uh, rare and mythic creatures also have more toxic than damage. Then around 40%, slightly less than 40%, of the creatures are going to be equal, so they deal the same amount of damage and toxic. Uh, if you divide them by the, you know how much um, how much um, damage you need to deal with either of them, and only twelve percent or so of creatures have more damage than toxic. And also, when you think about it, um, those creatures will very often have other abilities that make it slightly. Uh, advantageous to deal uh, poison damage because I think one of them is a one of them has trample and obviously you can block out normal damage by trample but if something tramples it still deals damage to the opponent which means that they still get a poison counter two of those creatures and one of them was the indoctrination attendant they can generate another one one toxic creature which means that if you play the card to the fullest it generates one extra power and one extra toxic. Uh, that means that actually when you calculate this in, uh, they are moved to the category of being equally as toxic as damage because a 3-4 um, with toxic 1 and a 1-1 one, one with toxic 1, they deal 4 damage to the face and uh, 2 poison counters, which is equivalent. Um, so even those that deal more damage um, than, um, than uh, poison counters, even those they have special circumstances that will cause them to be more toxic than damage. And this means that if you build decks that purely contain creatures with toxic, you will be more likely to end up killing your opponent with the toxic damage than killing them with regular damage. And that's important thing to know uh, when you're trying to build decks um, that kill with uh, poison counters. You really need to max out on the toxic creatures. And um, also, you know, you have to keep in mind that even if you don't deal all the damage with the uh, poison counters, you can proliferate it. So you can go to a certain point when, when you deal eight uh, poison damage and then the last two you might do when, uh, without attacking. So let's look at the more damaged creatures and there's four of them. Uh, Stinging Hive Master, that's a three mana three two with toxic one. But when it dies, it creates a one one with um, a toxic one. So in total, all the pieces of cardboard that this card is likely to generate have four power and two uh, toxic, which means that it's actually an equal creature. Indoctrination attendant, I already said. Again, four power and two toxic uh, in total, if you use the full uh, ability. Um, there is the Karamonix, the Rat King, uh, that's a three mana, three, three with toxic one. So this one clearly on its own, um, it has more damage than toxic, but it gives um, toxic one to all other rats that you control. Um, and I assume that if you play it in your deck, you probably have some rats, which means that it can actually tilt this, uh, because if it gives toxic one to another creature, that becomes toxic two, and it only has three power, so uh, it tilts the damage, it, it tilts the balance towards, uh, towards being more toxic than damage, actually, in this case. And the last one is Bloated Contaminator, three mana, four for Trump with toxic one. Here, the case is it has trample, so you can block out the majority of the damage um, from, uh, from the creature. Um, and it will uh, deal toxic and also what it has is when it deals combat damage you proliferate which means that it deals damage you put one poison counter and you proliferate it the second one so um, even uh, if not blocked it will uh, generate two toxic counters actually uh, 
while uh, dealing four damage, which makes it into the even um, into the even category again. So excluding those four, which theoretically deal more damage than toxic, actually every single creature with uh, toxic will deal more poison counter damage or at least equal amount of poison counter damage as it will do um, uh, regular damage proportionally. Um, so toxic in terms of plan, it focuses around absent colors. And I think that if you play in absent colors, you should either focus on winning with poison or avoiding toxic. Uh, because since all the toxic creatures deal more damage in um, poison counters, doing so until a certain step and then switching a strategy to trying to deal uh, face damage is going to be detrimental for you because you already did so much work in dealing this toxic damage that you might as well continue with it uh, and have the uniform plan. Um, and I think that actually when you look at it, um, pretty good strategy for that will be to uh, maybe try to build your toxic decks that want to focus on dealing this 10 poison damage as a three color deck with all abs and things because then you can combine the very powerful early game from white and black that can deal early toxic damage with a very powerful late game from green that can deal late poison damage. And uh, that's a very interesting combination. Plus you get access to um, a multiple of the uh, really strong toxic signposts and commons. So um, uh, that's going to be uh, pretty useful for you because both white green, black green and um, uh, white black uh, do help you when you are doing toxic. Now, the problem with Toxic, again, is that combat tricks giving power and toughness boosts uh, are not going to forward your plan to win with poison counters, which means that there is a good case if you are trying to win with poison counters to use those combat tricks rather than to push damage, you use it to defend your creatures and uh, make sure that they survive combat. Also, your Toxic creatures are usually going to be slightly smaller, so you can use your combat tricks as a sort of semi-removal spell because your 2-2 two -two might now kill the 3-3 three -three, and then you have still, hopefully after playing the combat trick, you still have mana to uh, uh, to play something else and you extend your board while removing something from the board of the opponent and uh, you win on the board presence. Because Toxic, because it has smaller creatures, you want to have a large board presence. And this is again, one reason why I think it's nice combining the absent colors because the white gives you more access to the mites, which are one ones that have Toxic. You can generate multiples of them and then you can just swing with several attacks um, that maybe go in for two, three damage, but they also go for in for uh, two, three Toxic, which means you put three poison counters and that's much more valuable than going in for three damage uh, at the cost of sacrificing some board presence. And this is all fine and nice, unless, of course, your goal is to turn on Corrupted. Corrupted is the ability where when you have three, when the opponent has three or more poison counters, you get something extra from your cards. And this is a reason for not wanting to really kill your opponent with poison counters, but just to get the Corrupted online and then uh, using the extra value that you get from Corrupted to make sure that you win the game because your cards are now much more powerful. And there's 17 spells uh, with Corrupted. Um, they are all focused on the Esper um, uh, part of the color pipe. So uh, black, white, blue. Uh, and I sort of classified them into three types of Corrupted. And the first one is the one they want to get it as early as possible. Um, the second one is the ones that are aging with the game, which means that you should be still okay when you don't uh, put it online by turn five, but maybe by turn six, seven, you really want it uh, to happen because uh, it opens new possibilities. 
and the other is optional. When I think that corrupted, it's nice to have it, but uh, the card is actually either good or bad enough without corrupted that um, uh, you don't care that much if you uh, have the opponent at three poison counters or not. So corrupted ASAPs, the ones that you want to get early, uh, I put bone picker scourge, that's a three mana, two, two flyer. And then when you have corrupted, it gets uh, death touch and lifelink. You want to have it early because if you don't, that becomes a three mana win trade, which is not at rate. I think the three mana death touch lifelink uh, can be pretty good. Uh, Incisor Glider, that's a two mana flyer with uh, that's one three. And with Corrupted, whenever it attacks, uh, if an opponent has three or more poison counters, the, all the creatures you control get plus one plus one until end of turn. This ability, I mean, I think last sets showed us how powerful it can be uh, in terms of uh, winning the games with a couple of creatures that needed four or five mana to activate that ability. This one can have it for free, which is super powerful, especially when you have multiples of Incisor Glider. <clears throat> but of course, you want it as early as possible because you want to get that kind of momentum and, and, and boost your party. Um, and last one is Zealot's Conviction, uh, my secret bet on, 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 on one of the most powerful commons in the set. Um, it's a one mana flash enchant creature. Enchanted creature gets plus one, plus one. Uh, but if you have corrupted, as long as opponent has three or more poison counters, enchanted creature gets an additional plus one, plus oh, and has first strike. So it's a one mana flash, uh, plus two, plus one first strike, which will be something that will win you combats. Maybe you block something, you play this, uh, you kill their creature, and then you have actually a formidable attacker uh, that is plus two, plus one first strike um, that they still need to deal with. Um, so the corrupted ASAPs will probably require a slightly different game plan. Like Bone Picker Scourge, if you get corrupted, it does not bring you closer to um, winning the game with poison counters. Incisor Glider does not get you closer to winning with uh, poison counters. Zealous Conviction does not get you closer to winning with poison counters. So some of those decks that base on lots of corrupted um, synergies, they will need to be capable of being really quick to produce um, the corrupted condition. And then from the moment when you have those three poison counters, you just forget about your plan about corrupted, uh, um, about uh, killing with poison counters and focus on the plan of actually killing them with regular damage. So I think that if you want to play those ASAPs, you want to have either very early uh, creatures with toxic, like one ones for one, things like that. Maybe like a one one with flying for two mana, that would be perfect for that. And then you want to have majority of your creatures to be even on the damage to corrupted because those creatures deal as much damage in toxic and in um, uh, regular damage. Therefore, because you have those bonuses like Zealot's Conviction, like Incisor Glider, they will be very quickly overtake the, uh, the rate at which you are dealing the to to poison damage and will um, start uh, uh, being the threat to their actual life total. Um, then you have the Corrupted Wait and Chill. And uh, the cards I show here, Anoint with Affliction. It's a two mana removal, exile target creature if it has mana value three or less. And with Corrupted, it actually exiles any creature. So in the early game, you don't really care that much because in the first three turns, they will not play anything that is more than three mana most of, most of the time. Uh, so it plays perfectly like a removal early in the game without having Corrupted. But, you know, maybe later in the game, you want to deal with larger threats. You want to have that Corrupted online at some stage. Um, bring the ending, same thing. Current counter target spells unless its controller pays two. And if you have Corrupted, counter any spell. So in the first few turns, usually opponent tops out. So this will counter anything. 
Um, later in the game, you probably want to have corrupted so that this card is not dead when they start casting six drops and still have four mana left. And slightly different, um, slightly different card here in Chittering Skitterling. That's a three mana one four, and we have corrupted. Uh, it gains an ability: sacrifice an artifact or creature, draw a card, activate only. Well, well you know, corrupted basically. Um, and oh. And also you can only activate it once each turn, but you also can activate it on the opponent's turn, which is a great value engine when you have small things that you can sacrifice. You can sacrifice things in response to removal if they, by some reason, choose to remove something else than this. Obviously, it can sacrifice to itself. So if you have corrupted, it will um, it will be quite useful. But usually in the early game, you want to trade your life board presence so you will not be having too many sacrifice um, uh, fodder, which means that early maybe it is a, like three mana one four that can block some things but you still want to get it online because you want to get the value from it um, uh, at some stage. Uh, so in this strategy, if you want to wait and chill, you want to maybe get like one, maybe two like poison counters on the opponent. And at some stage, you will maybe cast a spell with proliferate or, or whatnot. And that will bring the corrupted online. And then you can have multiple strategies. You can play a long game with toxic when you control the board and maybe have random proliferate effects uh, uh, or maybe repeatable sources of proliferate that will allow you to um, you know control the board and at the same time uh, continue uh, into killing the opponent uh, or you can um, uh, or you can play bigger things and kill them with damage because you don't care that much uh, about killing them with toxic either way it really depends how your deck is built and how it's designed I think that the important thing is that you need to have ways of getting at least that first one or two uh, toxic damage on board. And after that, if your deck is not built to go the full length and dealing 10 poison damage, uh, you might actually change to some kind of more con conventional strategy. And there are some cards that I counted as optional. There's Phyrexian Atlas with Corrupted. It's a mana rock for three mana with Corrupted. Uh, whenever it becomes tapped, uh, opponent uh, loses a life which clearly wants you to kill them, not with toxic counters, so you don't care about anything over three. But I think that you will play this card because you are in the market for a mana rock or maybe some artifact synergies and not because you want to have that corrupted ability and ping them for one every turn. I, don't, I think that's just crazy. Um, Ravenous Necrotitan, that's a four mana six, six. Uh, when you don't have corrupted, you have to sacrifice a creature when you play it. And when you have corrupted, you don't just uh, vanilla six, six for four mana. I think that this card is perfectly playable without any um, uh, corrupted. Uh, you just need to make sure that your deck can accommodate sacrificing some piece of cardboard uh, when this enters the battlefield. And lastly, we have Feed the Infection. That's a four mana, draw three, lose three life. When you have corrupted, also each opponent loses three life. Again, that points towards trying to kill your opponent with actual normal damage. Uh, but I think that if you are in for playing this card, you don't care about the Corrupted Clause, you just want to draw three cards, that's your main goal. And Corrupted is sort of like, again, gravy. Sometimes it will work, sometimes it won't, but it shouldn't change the evaluation of your card, maybe like a small tiebreaker. Right, so that's the strategies for the Corrupted. Um, now we have Proliferate, and there are 33 cards with Proliferate or with Proliferate Synergies. I clustered them all together just to see what chunk of the, um, what chunk of the um, uh, cards are playing well with uh, Proliferate or having Proliferate. And this is focused in the Sultai. So um, Corrupted was an Esper. This is in Sultai, so uh, blue, black, and green. 
And I obviously proliferate means you can put a counter of any type um, um, on any permanent that is on board or any player. So you can proliferate poison, you can proliferate other counters. And I divided those things as sort of four different types of proliferate strategies. First one will be proliferate as a plan in its own. When you don't even probably care if you proliferate anything, but just proliferating gives you some kind of value. Uh, second one is a proliferate as poison source. And this is for decks that will deal some poison damage and later proliferate on towards the 10. That's probably your plan. Um, third, it's a group of cards where proliferate is an option where you can be quite flexible in what you want to do. You can either uh, use them proliferating if it's beneficial for you, if, if, if you drew a certain half of your deck, for example, that will benefit from proliferating. But sometimes those cards uh, have other options which uh, don't require proliferating. So you're sort of split between what you want to do and flexible in that way. And the fourth one is proliferate as oil synergy because uh, lots of cards will have oil counters. And obviously it's nice and well to proliferate um, at poison counters, but it's just basically like tagging along deal to damage to an opponent to every spell that you cast with proliferate. Sometimes you want to get more and there's plenty of oil cards in the colors that also have proliferate and therefore you can uh, try to uh, basically uh, benefit from increasing the count of your oil um, counters and cards. We're going to have a lot about oil in a second, so uh, we're going to go maybe deeper into those strategies. Uh, but now I'm just going to signal that you can proliferate as an origin synergy. Uh, so for proliferate as a plan, there's like four cards really in the whole set that are really decent payoffs for you proliferating without uh, uh, having any counters on. First is Scheming Aspirant. That's a two mana, one three. Whenever you proliferate, each opponent loses two life and you gain two life, so drain two. Uh, you can think this as a sort of alternative win con, especially when you have maybe a couple of them. Every proliferate spells you play from now on will drain them for two, drain them for four. And that accumulates pretty quickly. And especially if the opponent is not trying to kill you with toxins, um, the life gain is relevant. And if they do try to kill you with toxins, the actual one free body might be quite menacing for some of those uh, toxic creatures that are not so big, if, especially when they're outside of, um, outside of green. Uh, second, that's an uncommon payoff, which is important because this is the one that you're going to see the most. Uh, second uh, payoff is Venser, uh, Corpse Puppet. That's again a two mana, one three, this time uh, one blue and one black. Unlike the Scheming Aspirant, it's just um, uh, one and a black. It has lifelink, it has toxic one. Um, and whenever you proliferate, you can choose one. If you don't control a creature named the Hollow Sentinel, create the Hollow Sentinel, a legendary three, three colorless Phyrex and Golem. And if you have the golem on board already, then if you proliferate target artifact creature you control, which means that the golem can be that, gains flying and lifelink until end of turn. So that's a really solid um, uh, proliferate uh, uh, payoff, especially the first one when you create a 3-3. So you got a two mana thing, and incidentally, you also create a 3-3 body to accompany it. But also like giving those golem um, uh, flying and lifelink until end of turn will let you race quite uh, efficiently. And also like, if they kill the golem, you can just proliferate again and uh, get a nux, another copy because you uh, you don't control the golem, so you can create a new one. It's, I think it's a neat payoff for proliferating, just without even doing anything, without even like adding any extra um, counters. However, worth noting that Venser can, if you're on the play, can probably go in for one if you play it well, and sit from then on, every proliferate is also going to bring you closer to that corrupted uh, threshold. 
um, every and, and and of course Venser being in blue black is in those Esper colors. When I said uh, that I said are quite interested in having corrupted uh, online at some stage, um, and you know you can again uh, conceive of plans that uh, include killing uh, the opponent with damage or killing them with uh, proliferating uh, poison counters if your deck is more inclined towards the poison damage. Uh, third one is Azuri Stalker of Spheres. That's a rare. Venser was also a rare. Azuri Stalker of Spirits is a four mana, two green and blue, so um, in semicolors. When it enters the battlefield, you may pay three. If you do, you proliferate twice. And it also has a pass static ability whenever you proliferate, draw a card. So you can play it as a four mana, three, three. You can play it for seven mana as a three, three that draws, draws two cards, which I think is a decent um, ability if you are uh, later in the game and you have the seven mana. But also every single other proliferate spell or effect that causes you to proliferate will draw your card. So I can imagine it playing it on four, attacking with something that proliferates on attack and drawing a card and boom, you paid off your 3-3. Three, three. You basically constructed your own 3-3 three, three drawer card, which is still a decent card. And the more you proliferate, the more cards you draw uh, uh, and you can basically outvalue the opponent if that stays alive for some time. Voidwing Hybrid, um, that's the last uh, proliferate as a plan card that I uh, want to highlight. It's a 2-mana two 2-1 two flyer for blue and black. It has Toxic 1, and whenever you proliferate, you return the hybrid from your graveyard to your hand. So it's a recursive evasive threat that deals Toxic and benefits from you proliferating. So even though this card is even in terms of how much damage does it do in regular damage and in Toxic damage, um, because if it dies, you need to proliferate to get it back. You will sort of be slightly ahead on the toxic counters, which makes me think, well, this one is a pretty good enabler of um, the strategy of killing with combination of toxic and proliferate to make uh, sure that the opponent has 10 poison counters. So these are the only four cards, which means that you probably want to be on this plan when you open one of those cards and or draft them earlier. You know, like you get pack one, pick four, Venser, or pack one, pick five, Azuri. You see, well, maybe... Not only green-blue is open, but also uh, the proliferate payoff is there. Maybe I can pick up like a late scheming aspirant. Uh, maybe uh, maybe I'll get a Voidwing hybrid uh, later in the game. Um, you have a couple of those payoffs, and then you can start thinking, okay, I'm going to go uh, slightly all-in on the proliferate and try to uh, make a deck that doesn't really care about much, but wants to proliferate just for the proliferation's sake. But of course, in those decks, if you pick some oil synergies, uh, it's fine. If you pick some cards that give poison counters to the opponent, it's also fine. Uh, you can combine those strategies and, and, and carve your sort of way into it. Um, and of course, it's nice to have those payoffs, but you need to have good enablers. And it's nice to cast a spell that has proliferate tagged onto it, but it's not going to, uh, it's not going to uh, push you very far. So what you want is you want to have reproducible proliferate triggers. And there's three of those cards that I highlight. Uh, first is Thrumming Bird. That's a two mana, uh, one and a blue, uh, one and one flyer. Whenever it deals combat damage to a player, you proliferate. So this is the creature I told you that you can do when you uh, play some kind of a proliferate um, payoff. While this is on board, attack, proliferate, boom, you have your effect very quickly. And it will do it next turn unless the opponent kills it. So uh, pretty useful Thing for those proliferate decks, and obviously also pretty useful for uh, quite a large number of uh, oil payoffs, um, and that can be in blue and uh, adjacent colors. Uh, second card, Bloated Contaminator. That's uh, we already mentioned it when we were discussing the creatures that have more power than uh, toxic damage. 
a three mana four for trample uh, for two and a green with toxic one. Whenever it deals combat damage to a player, proliferate. So uh, same ability as the Thrumming Bird, but on a much more uh, attractive 4-4 trampling body. Uh, so even if it's blocked, um, it might push some damage through, give Toxic, amplify the Toxic, amplify all the oil synergies, etc., etc., etc. Also, because it has Trample, you know, combat tricks uh, are quite prime for that card uh, because uh, opponent can double block it, Combat trick blows them out of the water, and still they get the toxic, and still you get the proliferate. So, quite a cool card. Obviously, it's a rare, so you know, don't hold your breath on getting it. Uh, but worth knowing that it's there. And the last one is Tainted Observer. That's the um, Simic Signpost Uncommon. One green blue for a, a two three flyer with toxic one. Whenever another creature enters the battlefield under your control, you may pay two mana if you do proliferate. So you know. You play this, you play some payoff, and then every creature that you play, if you have enough mana, is going to be another proliferation uh, and another uh, set of effects that you do. So this is the proliferate as a plan. You need to have those enablers. You need to have those uh, payoffs. It's not going to be a deck that comes together very often. But uh, when it does, that's going to be the one that you're going to share uh, on your Twitter and, 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 and post it in different discords, because it will be sweet. Um, but I think that you know the reality of things is that uh, the more common version will be proliferate as a poison source. And I put a couple of cards here um, that will be good proliferate as a poison source uh, examples. First is Blightbelly Rat. That's a two mana, two, two rat with um, toxic one. And also when it dies, it proliferates, which means it can, if it connects once, it gives one poison counter, then it can attack. And even if the opponent blocks, they will get a second uh, poison counter. Uh, so this is a good card because it will give you like this inevitability at certain stage of if they block it, well, probably it dies and then they get a poison counter. If they don't block it, well, it connects and then they get a poison counter. If it kill, if they kill it in the attack, still poison counter. Uh, so like a good source of like uh, late inevitability. I, I can really imagine this being sort of a grown fest when um, you've stabilized the game, but you're uh, a bit low on... Uh, or a bit high on the poison counters, and the opponent plays Blightbelly Rat, and you're like, damn, what's going on? Um, another card that I want to showcase here is Whispered of the Dross. It's uh, an instant target creature gets minus one, minus one, until end of turn, proliferate. The importance of that card is that it can kill like this uh, odd blocker. Uh, it can win you some combats that you normally wouldn't have won. And while it does it, it also proliferates. Um, so quite a good utility card if you are into that plan. You probably want to play uh, a couple of those because you know if you have one drops that deal poison damage you deal deal this one poison damage they play two drop whisper of the dross um, uh, their two drop kill it and then attack you with your one drop again all of a sudden the opponent is at three poison counters and they're staring on the um, um into uh, uh you having corrupt online for example the third card i put was drown in icor it's two mana sorcery Target creature gets minus four, minus four until end of turn, proliferate. This again, because it's cheap and it removes quite a lot of creatures, it's going to be very powerful in those um, I tried to kill with the poison um, damage strategies because, again, caveat, you want to get your first poison damage quite early, but once you do, you cast Drown and Ike or remove a key blocker, swing with three toxic creatures, and all of a sudden the opponent is really uncomfortable. And also he proliferated, which sort of tagged along the extra counter for them. Um, 
Peripherate as an option, and there's plenty of cars that have um, uh, modalities, and one of the modalities is Peripherate. I want to showcase especially Contagious Vorak because it's a great case of being flexible. Um, it's a three mana three three, fine. Uh, but when it uh, enters the battlefield, uh, you look at the top four cards of your library, you may reveal a land card from among them and put it in your hand, which very often you will do early in the game, especially in best of one, when a Smoother does not allow you to sort of flood, so you want to have this fifth land, uh, and Contagious Vorak is a very good guarantee that you're going to hit your five drops uh, on, on the curve uh, in those kind of more expensive, maybe green heavy decks. But you can always choose not to reveal the land card and uh, put it in your hand, and if you don't, proliferate. So it gives you that flexibility. If you draw it like super late, and you already have all the lands, you don't care about the next land on the board because you are flooded, you might as well proliferate, maybe put a couple of oil counters here and there, or maybe put a poison counter on the opponent. Very good card that allows you that flexibility. Um, also, it's like a sort of like a safety valve for, uh, for missing uh, with it. Uh, because obviously, if you miss a land, you can still proliferate. So, a nice fail safe for that. Um, then you have Adaptive Sports Singer. It's three mana, two, two with vigilance. When it ETBs, choose one. Target creature gets plus two, plus two, and gains vigilance until end of turn. So, it sort of gives haste to itself, but in a better way, uh, because it makes a creature much bigger, therefore, will not be maybe able to be blocked um, in a useful way. But the second option on it is proliferate. So if you don't have like anything good, maybe this is the no. You don't have any creatures on board, or maybe the creatures that you have on board will still not have good attacks. You can still proliferate and get some value out of it. So again, slight flexibility. And the last card is choose one thirsting roots, one green. Choose one. Search your library for a basic card, reveal it, and put it in your hand. Then shuffle. I think very important card, especially if you want to have this kind of proliferate three color strategies because you can cut a land for, or cut multiple lands even for Thirsting Roots. And if you're heavy green, you're still going to be able to fix your mana. You put a lot of forests, couple of, or three of Thirsting Roots, two of Thirsting Roots. If you don't have the land of blue or, or black, you can use Thirsting Roots to fetch a land. But if you have enough mana and you don't need any more, then you can still use it as a proliferate card to increase your uh, proliferate density in your deck while you know you pay some cost for having the uh, lands that need to be fetched by mana, but um, but it's not such a big cost as uh, the benefits are. And it's the same thing that we've seen recently with uh, Bushwhack, when replacing a land with Bushwhack made the card much better than putting it as a playable inside of your deck, because then your modality was not really there. It was more like an emergency if I don't have a land. Here, you want to put yourself in a situation when Thirsting Roots by default is a land, and then in some rarer situations, it will be a proliferate spell. That's where you want to have it, because that means that you have a land that can become a proliferate thing, uh, um, but you still have a land possibility if, if, if you need it, rather than having it mainly as the second ability, because that means that you would put a one mana proliferate spell, which is just not good enough, I think, in the current thing. And also important that Thirsting Roots uh, can fix your mana, which enables some sort of five color strategies uh, uh, or four color strategies maybe across the corrupted, proliferate, and toxic kind of uh, wedges uh, to combine them all. And then there's proliferate as oil synergy. And um, I want to showcase a couple of cards here. Like, first of all, Volt Charge, because it's a red proliferate spell. Volt Charge is a, a two and a red instant, deals three damage to any target, proliferate. Now, this, this proliferate is tagged along there, and maybe it will not have many, many uses, but 
it's worth noting that red and green are the colors where um, oil is um, um, predominant and also blue. So oil is a sort of Timor kind of uh, ability, even though it's present in other colors, but it's more apparent in, in, in Timor colors. Um, because of that, it is quite unique because it's outside of that uh, normal color pie for other proliferate spells. Therefore, it will be mainly useful for um, oil because red doesn't have any toxic, which means that uh, amplifying uh, your poison counters with Volt Charge will be something that will not happen very frequently and will not probably be even remotely even aimed at, um, uh, at killing your opponent with uh, 10 poison counters. Maybe, you know, like you have some kind of a weird Jeskai kind of deck that tries to get corrupted online or something. Uh, second card I wanted to showcase is Unnatural Restoration, uncommon for two mana, one in a green. Uh, sorcery return, target permanent from your graveyard to your hand, proliferate. I put this here because every single oil card is a permanent, which means that Unnatural Restoration plays very naturally, not unnaturally, very naturally with, um, with oil permanent because you can return one. Of course, you cannot proliferate the one that you uh, uh, picked from the graveyard, but um, it lets you ramp other spells, uh, other things that you have with oil and return one of them uh, to the battlefield, perhaps for you know some kind of synergies where um, uh, multiple cards with oil are important. And then there's another one, Expand the Sphere. It's a four mana sorcery, three and a green. Look at the top six cards of your library, put up to two lands from the uh, among them into the battlefield tapped and the rest of the bot bottom library at random order. If you put fewer than two lands into this battlefield this way, proliferate a number of times equal to the difference. So if you choose zero lands, you proliferate twice. If you pick only one land, you proliferate once. You can choose that. Um, and it's a nice thing because you can ramp into those bigger oil uh, payoffs. And at the same time, if you don't need more lands, you can just double proliferate and uh, make your creatures bigger, give the value to the to this uh, to um, something that accumulates um, oil counters uh, beneficially, and so on and so on. So yeah, um, that's an interesting uh, use of that card. Obviously, I don't think it's a great card, but I do think that it will have some fringe uses in in, in decks that want to proliferate oil, for example. Having said that, oil is the biggest mechanic in the set, I think. Um, did we talk about how many toxic cards we have? Huh, I didn't even calculate, but I think that there is more oil cards than toxic. Um, oil, there's 46 cards with oil or oil synergies. They focus around the teamer, and I divided them by types of oil. And by types of oil, I mean how you use the card. And I used wherever I could. Um, I used uh, analogous cards from other sets that use some other types of counters. So I saw among the types of oil, there are relic amulets. If you remember, I'm going to remind what the card does. Um, uh, will I? No. So relic amulet is a card from Zendikar Rising. Whenever you cast an instant sorcery or wizard, put a charge counter on relic amulet, and then you can pay two and tap it, remove all charge counters from relic amulet. It deals that much damage to target creature. And this basically means that those cards behave like they accumulate those oil counters, and then if they get to a certain threshold, you can remove those counters, and then you can restart the process of accumulating those counters and, um, um, and removing them again. Uh, the difference with, with those cards with Relic Amulet is that most of them, they have a fixed number that you need to remove, and um, if you accumulate more, you don't need to remove everything like you did with Relic Amulet. And Relic Amulet was tricky to play because sometimes you put too many counters on it and, uh, and you wasted some damage. 
Um, there are serrated arrowses, and I will insist on using the uh, serrated arrowses form um, on that one. Ser serrated arrows, if um, you know, for those of you that played in Homeland, as many did, um, uh, it's an artifact that comes into play with three arrowhead counters on it, and then you can remove an arrowhead uh, to put a minus one minus one counter on target creature. And this way of operating means that um, you sort of come with a certain amount of a resource and you slowly deplete it. Um, and once it hit zero, arrows were exiled. Here, most of those things, they will stay alive. Um, oh, cool. So there's more toxic. Thank you, bird person. Actually, there is more toxic than uh, oil, uh, worth noting. Um, uh, so the difference is that um, most of those cards in here will just stay on board after you deplete this slow resources. Uh, uh, but probably there will be no way of uh, barring very, very few cards. There is no way of replenishing them after you remove the last one because you probably want to rely on proliferate on putting the extra counters on those type of things. Then there are Hex Drinkers. Uh, and Hex Drinker is a one mana creature from somewhere, some set. I don't know exactly where it was printed originally. It is level up. And then basically you level it up and it it's a two one originally for one mana. When you level it up three times, it becomes a four four with a uh, protection from instance, and then when you level up, uh, 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 was it originally printed in Modern Horizons? Okay, I thought it was a reprint in Modern Horizons, but uh, I, I, I accept that answer. Uh, when you get it to level eight, it becomes a six-six um, with protection from everything. Great skill, uh, but if you you know you can level it up till twenty, but it doesn't change anything. And uh, hex drinkers in this format are the things that need to reach a certain threshold of oil counters. And after that, it just doesn't matter that much uh, if you add extras. Obviously, you can, but uh, it just doesn't change anything how the card operates. You just want to reach a particular level, and after that, you're good. Then there is Fading, oh, Midnight Clocks. Midnight Clock is a card from uh, whatever. Uh, was it Innistrad Midnight Hunt, I think? Um, it's a three mana, two and a blue uh, mana rock. It taps for blue. It has a um, three mana ability of putting a an hour counter on midnight clock, and at the beginning of upkeep, uh, you put an. Uh, oh, it was Eldraine, okay, yeah. Uh, at the beginning of each upkeep, you put an hour counter on the midnight clock, and when uh, it reached 12 hour, so 12 hour counters, uh, you uh, basically exile the midnight clock and you draw seven, you basically shuffle your uh, hand and graveyard into your library and you draw seven cards. So this type of effect, and yeah, obviously you exile Midnight Clock uh, in the process. So this thing is like building to something big, and at the end of that, you collected everything, and you lose your permanent, but you get some kind of a very powerful effect. Uh, so there's a couple of Midnight Clocks in the, in this, in the set. Uh, there's Fading, that's the fifth type of oil that I counted. Um, fading means that you start with some amount of uh, um, oil counters, they get removed every turn or uh, when something happens. And when you have zero fading counters on the uh, permanent, it dies. Very much like, you know, Blastoderm. And there is a, basically a Blastoderm reprint in this format. Slightly better Blastoderm, maybe. Um, where it had three fading counters and every turn you removed one. When you removed all of them, it died. Um, and the last category I have is the more the better. And there's a couple of cards that just the more oil counters you put on them, the better they become. You just want to put as many as possible. If you have a million oil counters on that permanent, it becomes great. And look, I'm not going to take fringe cases of, oh no, but then if they have 25, they will be killed by this spell that only kills creatures with 25 power. No, 
just let's assume that the more the better for you um, and not not counting uh, not counting um, not counting fringe cases so let's go to those um, the oil relic amulets that I looked at um, there's the mercurial spell dancer it's a one and a blue two one creature can't be blocked whenever you cast a non-creature spell you put an oil counter on mercurial spell dancer Whenever it deals combat damage to a player, you may remove two oil counters from it. If you do, when you cast your next instant or sorcery spell this turn, copy that spell, you may choose new targets for the copy. So basically what you do, you play it, you attack with it because it's unblockable, you cast a couple of spells, it gets two, um, um, two oil counters, you can cast your next spell and basically copy it. Um, so you have to prep yourself for that, but uh, it basically will double your spells once in a while. Uh, so like a classic relic amulet, you build up some counters, you remove the counters, you rebuild the counters, you remove some counters, and every time you do that, you get some value. Same goes for Serum Core Chimera, the uh, red-blue uh, signpost uncommon, four mana, two blue and red, flying, two, four. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, you put an oil counter on Serum Core Chimera, very much like relic amulets had it for um, spells or wizards. Then you can remove three oil counters from it, um, and then you draw a card, you may discard a card. When you do, and you discard a non-land, it deals free damage to any target played as a sorcery. So again, you build three counters, you remove the three counters, you get the draw, maybe you get a removal uh, of one of the cards that you don't need. Um, that is a non-land. Uh, looks um, exactly like um, Relic Amulet. The difference is it still can attack uh, at the same time. Then we have a Char Forger, that's uh, a three mana uh, black-red signpost, one black and red. Uh, at two, three, when it TBs, you get a one, one red Pyrex and Goblin creature. Uh, and whenever another creature or artifact you control is put into graveyard from the battlefield, put an oil counter on it. You remove three oil counters from Char Forger, exile the top card of your library, and you may play this card. Uh, until the end of turn. So this one has a slightly different way of triggering the um, oil counters on it than the other two, because the other ones had non-creature spells. This one is when creatures die. Um, and it will, if it will get enough, you sort of get a draw a card for free, which uh, is you know quite useful. And the last one is Norn's Wellspring, two mana artifact in white. It's a bit of an uh, outlier here. Uh, whenever a creature you control dies, you scry one and put an oil counter on it. Uh, you can tap it to remove two oil counters uh, and pay one mana and tap it to remove two oil counters from uh, it and draw a card. So again, same um, way of activating the buildup of the counters is Char Forger, but weirdly in white. Um, and um, uh, and it will give you some incidental uh, card draw power. Difference with this one is that you actually have to pay mana and tap it, so you cannot activate it multiple times in a turn, and you need to uh, invest some mana in. So the serrated arrows is, I have three examples here. First one is a Meldweb Strider. That's a five mana vehicle. It is a five five with vigilance, crew three, but it comes into the battlefield with an oil counter and on it and you can remove an oil counter from it and it becomes an artifact creature until end of turn. So you sort of get one free activation of it. And, but if you proliferate, it also can become more and it's a vigilant threat and it's a 5-5, which is quite big in this format. So I sort of didn't think much about this card, but during our Archetype Skeletons um, episode, uh, Jason ILTG was really high on that card. And by really high, he said, oh, it's very decent. I think it's going to be pretty good in blue decks. Um, and when Jason says something, I'm listening. Uh, so uh, uh, I think that this card might be, might be 
better than it looks on the first uh, on the first look. Because yes, you play uh, nothing for five mana originally, but when you think about it, it's a creature that will probably be able to block because it won't be removed as a vehicle. You will activate it only in the um, in in the opponent's attack phase if you want to block with it, which means it sort of dodges uh, any kind of uh, removal. At, in, at, at sorcery speed, which is quite a large chunk of removal that can deal with it. Uh, so it's a fine thing to defend yourself. And later, in the, uh, later, if you um, don't have to activate on the first turn and you can get some proliferate going, it actually can become a threat that doesn't cost you too much to activate because you just need to remove that one oil counter. And it slams as a 5-5 Vigilance and is ready to block uh, on the crackback. Um, but again, it has this, it comes with a oil counter, you remove one, and you get some kind of a small value out of it. And if you put more counters, it can do it multiple times. Axiom Engraver, uh, two mana, one, three, enters the battlefield with two oil counters and you can tap it and remove an oil counter uh, and you rummage. Again, comes with two. Once you deplete them, it's just a one, three vanilla. But by depleting them, hopefully you got at least a card's value. Uh, so maybe an interesting, I said, one three um, stats might be actually quite useful against lots of the toxic decks. Um, and last one, uh, Lattice Blade Mantis, that's a four mana four three, uh, enters the battlefield with two oil counters. Whenever it attacks, you may remove an oil counter from it. it. If you do, untap it and it gets plus one, plus one until end of turn. Keyword big, good on offense, good on defense. Um, I've seen some early stream games that this card looked pretty solid. Um, uh, and it's a classic serrated arrows because comes with two, you remove it for some value. This one actually can be conditionally only activated when it attacks. So uh, you can't do it even at will, but sort of works like serrated arrows in a way. Uh, the Hex Drinkers, there are two. Um, there are two Hex Drinkers. Uh, one is Icor Synthesizer. We're gonna talk about this card in detail uh, quite soon. Uh, but whenever you cast a non-creature spell, put an oil counter on Icor Synthesizer. As long as it has four or more oil counters on it, it gets plus two plus O and can't be blocked. So once you get to four, you don't care about any other uh, oil counters um, on it because it becomes a three, three unblockable threat. You just want to get it to four and that's that's your target. You don't want three, you don't five, you don't care about, you want exactly four. Uh, Armored Scrap Gorger is the second one. Uh, that's a two mana O3. Uh, it gets plus three, plus oh, as long as it has three or more all counters on it. It taps for mana of any color, and when it becomes tapped, you can, you if you exile a card from a graveyard, you put an oil counter on it. If you don't, I don't think you do. I still didn't check the exact wording, but I think that chat did in, in our skeleton stream. I think it works like that, that if there is no target for exiling a card, it won't get the oil counter. So it won't be as fast as you maybe think in the first place. But once you get to three, nothing changes. If you get 17 oil counters on it, it still gets plus three plus O. So it doesn't really uh, change much. Still, card looks pretty sweet. O3 mana dork that can become a 3 3 later in the game. Whew, I'm in. Um, the Midnight Clocks, again, there are two. One is the Vindictive Flame Stroker. One mana creature, a 1 2. Whenever you cast a non creature spell, put an oil counter on it. And it has six and a red, sacrifice it, discard your hand, then draw four cards, disability costs one less to activate for each all counter on Vindictive Flamestroke. So obviously this one doesn't need like six oil counters on it, but I mean, it's much better when you play like, when you pay like two mana for drawing four cards or one mana for drawing four cards than, than if you play five. So you want to get some of those oil counters. And once you activate the ability, it dies. So uh, like Midnight Clock, 
it's a one-shot powerful ability drawing four cards is considered pretty strong um, and it probably requires quite a lot of all counters to make it mana efficient. Um, and the last one is the filigree silex. That's a two mana artifact. It taps to put an all counter on itself. Um, but of course you can uh, use uh, other, other kind of abilities to put counters on it. You can either sacrifice it and destroy each non-land permanent with mana value equal to the number of oil counters on it. Uh, keep in mind equal, so uh, not equal or less. Uh, make sure that you man manage it nicely. In this way, it's more like sort of ether vial. But it also has a second ability, remove 10 oil counters from among permanents you control and sacrifice the Silex. And the Silex then deals 10 damage to any target. So keep in mind, not only the Silex um, uh, oil counters, all the other oil counters will work, but it deals 10 damage, which is quite, quite a lot. So I think that in a dedicated oil deck, you know, you basically uh, put yourself on the same kind of clock as, um, as toxic damage, because once you get the opponent to 10, I'm pretty sure you can um, squeeze out uh, some other oil counters from uh, other permanents to make sure that the Silex kills uh, kills the opponent. Also can kill any target. And it also can be a sort of mini sweeper if you play it right. Fading, two cards again, Archfiend of the Dross, four mana, two and uh, two black, flying, six, six, enters the battlefield with foil oil counters on it. At the beginning of your upkeep, remove one counter from it. Then if it has no oil counters on it, you lose the game. Whenever creature an opponent calls, controls dies, its controller loses two life. So this is like sort of risky strategy because uh, if you don't have ways of sacrificing it, there will be games when you play it, get a pacifism and you basically die. Uh, but also a pretty powerful 6-6 uh, six, six flyer for four mana is good. So um, you probably want to have some way of prolonging its life or sacrificing it uh, in order to make sure that you won't lose. But it's so big that very often it will just uh, overtake the game and win. Um, evolved Spinoderm, four mana, five, five, uh, comes with four oil counters, uh, has trample as long as there's two or fewer oil counters or has hexproof when it has well more than two, basically. And at the beginning of your upkeep, remove an oil counter from it. And then if it has no oil counters, sacrifice it. So that's classic fading. It's a sort of kickback to uh, Blastoderm, which was a five mana, uh, four mana, five, five uh, hexproof with fading three. This is more uh, um, fading and um, uh, uh, it doesn't always have hexproof, but it has trample when it doesn't, which is also quite cool. Uh, doo -doo 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 -doo. And the last one, the more the better. And I think the chat was talking about uh, the lack of plus one, plus one counters. Well, sometimes oil counters do act like plus one, plus one counters. Here's four examples of those. Um, there's a three mana troller drake, uh, one, one, a flyer, a zero, zero flyer. So it better have something extra. It enters the battlefield with an oil counter and it gets plus one, plus one for each oil counter. So basically oil counters are plus one, plus one counters in this case, but they are called oil counters. Um, and whenever you cast a non-creature spell, put an oil counter on Troller Drake. So yeah, you can play that on turn three, turn uh, four, you can play like a cheap proliferate spell and it becomes a three, three all of a sudden. And then you can start swinging with a three, three flyer. Um, Necrosquito. It's a four mana, zero, zero flyer, three in the black. Enters the battlefield with two oil counters and it gets plus one, plus one for each oil counter. So very much the same uh, as the Troller Drake, but it gets more oil counters for a different mechanic. It gets uh, another, whenever another creature or artifact you control is put into a graveyard from the battlefield, then you put an oil counter on Necrosquito. So sort of like 
you want to trade your creatures and this grows, or you want to sacrifice your creatures and this grows, that kind of stuff. Uh, then we have Urabrask's Forge, the three mana artifact. At the beginning of your of combat on your turn, you put an oil counter on the forge, then create an X1 red Phyrexian horror creature token with trample and haste, where X is the number of oil counters on Urabrask's Forge. So the turn you play it, you make a 1 1, then you sacrifice the token at the beginning of the next end step. So it's sacrificed. Let's see that, let's say that you have, for the sake of argument, that you play turn three Urbrusk Forge, you swing with the one one, uh, it gets blocked and dies. No one cares about that that much. Turn four, you play Necrosquito, you put the um, counter on the forge, make a two one trampler, attack with it. If it goes in, it goes in. If it gets blocked, it dies and grows Necrosquito. If it doesn't get blocked, at the end of the turn, you sacrifice it and it grows Necrosquito. So you have like sort of like way of getting oil synergies and way of getting those uh, death triggers, which are relevant for some cards like the uh, Necrosquito and like the red-green uh, Char Forger that we mentioned before, uh, the 2-3 uh, that gets oil counters for every creature that you that dies on your side and also uh, lets you draw a card later, sort of draw a card. Um, and Evolving Adaptive, which is, uh, I think, constructed level card, I would say. Uh, it enters the battlefield with an oil counter on it, and it gets plus one, plus one for each oil counter on it. And whenever another creature enters the battlefield under your control, if that creature has greater power or toughness than Evolving Adaptive, put an oil counter on Evolving Adaptive. So this, um, you play it on turn one, you play a two drop on turn two, it becomes a two, two. You play a three drop that has three power or three toughness on turn three, it becomes a three, three really grows well with the game uh, in those early stages, I think like a staple of a green aggro. There's also like a couple of cards that put oil counters on things, uh, which uh, uh, can make it great if it survives the first turn uh, and doesn't get minus one, minus one or something. Um, and all those cards will become the better the more counters you have. Orobrask Forge with one million uh, oil counters will produce a million uh, uh, one uh, trampler, which is good. Necrosquito with million counters will be million, million and so on and so on. Now, obviously it's not only about the cards that have oil, it's also about how can I put things, uh, how can I put more oil counters uh, on, on my cards? It's all fine when you're playing green or blue because green and blue have proliferate, red has very little proliferate, but actually red has several cards that can put oil counters on, on, on your things. And there's Churning Reservoir, um, at the beginning of your upkeep, put an oil counter on another target non-token artifact you control. So every turn at your upkeep, you can put an oil counter on something, either to get value by removing it or by putting it on one of those cards that the more the merrier. And also it has the ability to sacrifice uh, to, to, to and tap. You create a 1-1 one, one goblin. Uh, you can only activate it if oil counter was removed from a permanent control this turn or a permanent with an oil counter on it was put into a graveyard this turn. So you can imagine you have a turning reservoir late in the game. You have something that has a ability of removing one oil counter from it to do something. Um, you can just do that and then uh, you can create a 1-1 one -one gobo because why not? Uh, Magmatic Sprinter, that's an interesting card. It's a three mana, three to haste. When it enters the battlefield, you can put two oil counters on target artifact or creature you control, not necessarily on itself, on anything. And at the beginning of your end step, return it to its hand to your hand unless you remove two oil counters from it. So what you can do is you can play it, put two counters on itself, attack. At the end of the turn, remove the two oil counters. Next turn, attack. I mean, unlikely with the three two. So I think that this card will play out more like 
grindy way of paying three mana and then I have put two oil counters on something with buyback. Then it comes back to your hand. You replay it next turn, put two oil counters on something. Obviously, if you do that kind of stuff, you probably want to have one of those cards that um, benefit from having uh, the more the merrier kind of uh, situation with oil counters. Um, free from flash, quite hopeful about this card's abilities. One mana, instant, target creature, gets plus two, plus two until end of turn, put two oil counters on it. So think about it with the, uh, the one drop um, that we were discussing that uh, grows with creatures. You might grow it for the first three turns, and now it's a 3-3. Three, three. You attack with it, no blocks. You play free from flesh. It gets plus two, plus two from the actual card. And you put two oil counters on it. It becomes a 7-7. Seven, seven. You just had a swing for seven. And next turn, they have to deal with at least a 5-5 five, five because um, those oil counters will stay on it, obviously. And with many other cards, this card has quite some good synergies. Uh, it's also a non-creature spell, so it will be pretty good with all the cards that have, um, whenever you play non-creature spell, put oil counters because it will put... Not only give plus two, plus two, but put three oil counters on that kind of uh, card. Um, and the last one is Furnace Skull Bomb. Uh, one mana uh, Skull Bomb, so it has one sacrifice it, draw a card. And for one in red, you can sacrifice it to put two oil counters on target artifact or creature, draw a card, activate a sorcery. Which, you know, sorcery speed is not great, but you draw a card, it's quite cheap. Um, uh, and if you really want to put multiple, uh, multiple, um, Oil counters and something, maybe that's that's the way. And if even if you don't have a target for it, you can just cycle it basically. Um, and there's some oil enablers and payoffs. Um, Urbrusk's Anointer, that's a three and red uh, artifact creature, four two. Uh, when it enters the battlefield, it deals X damage to any target where X is the number of permanents you control with oil counters on them. And there will be decks where this card is going to be great. But it's sort of like a slightly worse version of Basil Ravager, and I can use that analogy because we're just after uh, Kaltheim, Return of Kaltheim. Uh, Basil Ravager was the giant that uh, when it entered the battlefield, it pinged uh, any target for the number of uh, creatures that have the same type that is the highest of whatever creatures you control. And that was great because uh, that one baseline was it's a four mana four two that picks for one because it of course counted itself so giant and wizard. This card doesn't have that. This card um, can just be played as a vanilla four two if you don't have any permanents with uh, uh, oil counters. So it requires a, it has a lower floor, and the ceiling is not particularly higher than the basalt ravagers. Um, so you have to probably pick it when you need it. Uh, and when your deck allows you to play it. But it's actually good news because Basil Ravager, because the rate was so good, even if it didn't have too many tribal synergies, people just picked it and splashed it because you know you had maybe one changeling, you play it and it pinks for two. Um, this one won't be picked by some decks because they would just have zero oil uh, synergies and then you have to play a vanilla 4-2, um, um, which is not a great rate. So if you are into oil um, uh, synergies, you might get it later in the draft. And it also will be a great signal that the oil synergy decks are not particularly highly prioritized on your pod because you will see the late Urbrusk's anointer. And if there was another oil synergy person on the pod, they would definitely pick it because it's really great when you have, can pink for three or for four even. Um, then there's Oil Gorger Troll, five mana, three and two green. Uh, three, four, whenever it enters the battlefield, you gain three life. Then, if you control a permanent with an oil counter on it, draw a card. 
Again, I think that if you don't have permanence with oil counter, that card is medium or even bad. But if you have, you know, draw a card changes quite a lot in the card evaluation. If you reliably, like, you know, 80% of the time, draw a card from Old Guard or Troll, mwah, chef's kiss. You get three life, you get a body that is actually significant for this format, and you draw a card. I, I mean, love it. Um, then we have Cinder Flash Ravager. That's uh, six mana, so four red green. Uh, five five with vigilance. It costs one less to cast for each permanent you control with oil counters on it. Uh, and when it enters the battlefield, it deals one damage to each creature your opponents control. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you get it for four mana, that's a great rate for a five five vigilance. Uh, and I don't think it's going to be that difficult. Looking at dedicated oil decks um, at the early access stream, you will be very frequently having those curveballs when you have two drop creature with oil. Uh, Three drop creature with oil and turn four Cinderlash Ravager, maybe even kill something because it pings for one. Who knows? So, yeah, um, looks pretty solid. And then there's the Oil Lord. It's the Icor Plate Golem, three mana for a two, three colorless artifact creature. Whenever a creature enters the battlefield under your control, it has one or more oil counters on it. Put an oil counter on it. Now, this is great for a subset of the oil creatures that uh, we talked. It's good with um, it's good with serrated arrows, says. It's bad with relic amulets because they enter with no uh, oil counters. So serrated arrows is that sort of in increases their utility by one. Uh, it's not good with hex drinkers because they don't enter with anything. It's not great with midnight clocks. It's great with fading creatures, uh, and it's great with the more the better because they usually come in with an oil counter, uh, except for Orbrusk Forge. But you have to keep in mind that um, the Icor Plate Golem only works with a subset of uh, um, uh, of the oil permanence in terms of um, giving them extra oil counter. However, it also gives a plus one, plus one to every single creature you control that has oil counters on them. So um, uh, there, is, um, there is extra value in that. Uh, in general, it looks like pretty strong. Uh, if you have lots of oil, it's going to be great. But what you want to have really is um, things that have entered the battlefield with oil counters and are creatures uh, to maximize its rate. Right. Uh, last mechanic for Mirrodin. There's 18 cards with for Mirrodin or with equip synergies. It's an ability that whenever you play an artifact, you make an additional 2-2 and you attach the equipment uh, to it. Um, it's in Boros mainly. There is one green and one blue uh, equipment uh, that has for Mirrodin. And in terms of the types of equipment, um, there is vanilla for Mirrodin, and there are some that boost synergy, and there are, there are a couple of um, equipments that are not even for Mirrodin, so they are sort of Phyrexian uh, equipments or whatever. Uh, in terms of vanilla for Mirrodin, we're talking about cards like Barb Butterfist, that's a two-mana uh, equipment with for Mirrodin, so it's a two-mana two-two, and that comes equipped with a plus one, minus one, so basically it comes in as a three-one vanilla. And later, if the 3-1 dies, you still have that equipment when you can give plus one, minus one to something. Obviously, we'll play nicely with evasive threat, maybe trampling threats, something like that, that uh, power is actually beneficial for them. Maybe first striking threats, something like that. Cold Warden's Helm, three mana for Mirrodin. So uh, enters with a 2-2 two, two attached to it, and it becomes a 2-3 because it gives plus O plus one. Equip cost is one in the white. Uh, it looks pretty medium, but who knows? And Silver Battle Chair, that's a six mana, four, four green, 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 for Mirrodin, comes with a 2-2. Two, two. But the 2-2 two, two gets plus four, plus four, so it's a 6-6 six, six and has Trample. 
and you can re-equip it for five and green green. So that's like the, the chunky, the chunky kind of for Mirrodin equipment. And also not worth noting, this is the one of the ones that is outside of normal colors. So you probably won't be playing it in synergistic for Mirrodin decks, just but just basically as a six six vanilla that later can become uh, an uh, an equipment that makes everything bigger and trampling. Uh, there's two equipments that boost synergy, and that's Bladehold War Whip. That's a one red white uh, for an equipment for Mirrodin. So it comes with a 2-2 and it gives it double strike. So it's a 2-2 double striker, but it also makes equip abilities of other equipment cost one less to activate, which, you know, equipment cost is a very important parameter of how you evaluate the equipment. You want to have it cheap so you can do it multiple times in one turn, move it from one creature, attack with it, move it to another creature for blocks and so on. Uh, so that's and sometimes going to be useful. It has equipped for five mana itself, so it's quite uh, expensive, but uh, still three mana, two to double striker is good. And the, if you're like heavy on the equipment, which you can be in this format because every single one of those equipments will make a two two as it goes in. So you have less problems or with uh, density of creatures and you don't have that issue when, oh no, I drew three uh, equipments and I don't have anything to equip them with. Well, now you have because you have the two two. Um, Hex Gold Hoverwings, that's a four mana equipment with four Mirrodin. Equipped creature has flying, and the creatures you control that are equipped get plus O plus one, which means it itself gives plus one, plus O plus one, plus O to, um, uh, to the creature that it equips, the two two, so it's a three two um, flyer. But every creature that you have that is equipped will get a plus one attack bonus. So if you had the Bladehold War Whip uh, on uh, board when you played the Hex Gold Hoverwings, now your 2-2 two, two, uh, double striker becomes a 3-2 double striker, which is quite an upgrade. Uh, so these two are the only things that do it. Um, and there's a couple of uh, equip payoffs and enablers. I counted eight of them. Here there are some examples. There is Oxida Finisher, 5-red-red, uh, 7-5 Ogre, but it has affinity with Trample, but it has affinity for equipment. So for every equipment that you control, it becomes one mana cheaper. I think that for me to be interested, it, Five mana probably would be good. Uh, so if I have a deck that has, you know, six, seven for Mirrodin equipments, uh, I'm, I'm probably happy to play Oxida Finisher. Um, importantly, it has affinity for equipment, not for equipped creatures. So even if they kill your um, equipped creatures, you're left with a bunch of equipment hanging around, Oxida Finisher is going to be still uh, cheaper. I think perfect target to put the double strike uh, equipment because, you know, seven, five double strike, tends to end the games quite rapidly. Uh, there's Jorkadeen, first Gold Warden. I think that this is the, the card that would put me on the path to drive Boros. I don't think that this archetype looks particularly strong. Of course, time will tell, but uh, I think that some of those equipments are slightly underrated. They can't make very good uh, for Mirrodin equipment because if they do, other decks will just cannibalize them. Um, and I don't think that they put enough synergy to tie it together that um, uh, playing red-white synergistic deck is going to be a big benefit. So, uh, and there's also a problem with white being heavy on toxic and red not, which means that there's going to be a clash with what you want to do. Now, maybe you want to do some you know, corrupted things uh, early in the game and later take over with damage from the equipments uh, to kill with uh, actual life total, uh, life total attack. But Jerkadeen um, is a red and a white 2-2 with Trample. Whenever it attacks, it gets plus X, plus X until end of turn, where X is the number of equipped creatures you control. And if its power is four or greater, draw a card. So say you have two equipment on board, um, 
you equip Jorkadin with one, the other one is equipped with the four Mirrodin creature, you swing with this one, it becomes a 4-4 four -four with Trample, uh, you draw a card, and then uh, they still have to deal with quite a large creature that actually didn't cost much. So yeah, uh, looks pretty solid if you can slightly build around it. I guess that because your equipment are creatures, um, you can actually afford to play some um, combat tricks as well. So cards like Jorkadine with being, being Trampler, being probably a prime target for blocks might be actually quite useful. And then there's a Blade Graph Aspirant, uh, that's two and a red for a two, three menace. Equipment spells you cast cost one less to cast. Activate abilities of equipment you control that target it only cost one less to activate. So um, yeah, if you have a lot of the uh, Formiridin equipment, Bladegraft Aspirant on turn three can curve into a five mana equipment that makes a 4-3 Vigilance creature, but now it will cost four, so you have a four mana 4-3 Vigilance that leaves behind um, an equipment that you can quite cheaply attach to Bladegraft Aspirant um, and make it a 4-4 Menace Vigilant creature, which is quite quite useful. So I think that, yeah, this is a common way of um, uh, having the enablers and payoffs for the equip. So. Uh, uh, Maybe worth noting if you play a white red, you want to get all the copies of that kind of thing. And you know, menace menace is a good ability when you make a big creature. Right, that's it. that I think um, concludes the portion when I talk about the mechanics. Now I want to switch to the end part of the uh, of the podcast when I'm going to talk about how I come up with the plan during the theory crafting and also. Same steps can be used not only for theory crafting, but also for um, looking at decks later in the format when you, it's not purely theory because you have some good data to back you up and, and you can maybe try to find hidden archetypes, maybe find out the plan that you're going to try to implement and, and maybe the type of decks that you want to draft in each color. So it's going to be structured in a way that I first come up with the first step of the plan to try to discuss it why do I do it, how do I do it, and, and so on. And then as we proceed, I'm going to add the next steps of the plan and we're going to discuss them and so on and so on. And in the end, we're going to see the deck that I built so you can follow my rationale. I'm not saying that the deck is perfect. I'm just going to show you what kind of thought process I put in um, uh, into making this type of, this type of decks. Um, so first, I pick a color combination. And obviously, you have to pick a color combination to start crafting around uh, a deck. But it doesn't have to be a color combination. Maybe it's like an individual card that you're interested in uh, that you want to build around and figure out how to build a build around. But it's good to start with something that has a definition of the rest of your process. I want to build around this. I want to build a good black-green deck. I want to build a, a solid deck that splashes five colors, for example. And that's your definition of your project of coming up with a plan for something. Uh, in this case, I looked at uh, blue-red spells. I just like blue-red spells, tempo decks in limited. And that's enough of a reason for me to try to play with it. Uh, who said that the reason has to be other than that? And, you know, um, it can be later in the format that you want to come up with a Simic deck because you know that Simic is heavily underdrafted. And because it's heavily underdrafted, you will have access to it much more often. So you want to have a solid plan what to do when... Uh, I'm given the Simic um, uh, lane quite open because it will happen frequently. And if you have a good plan and you have a deck that maybe people don't know exists, you will be able to abuse the meta game and win a lot of games because you're going to get all the best cards of the combination that people undervalue and so on. So 
second step for me is to find a card that might be both undervalued and good. Um, this is before the set is being released, so I don't know either if the card is, that I picked is going to be undervalued, and I don't know if it's going to be good. But I had to pick something, so I picked um, Icor Synthesizer. A two mana, one in the blue, one three. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, put an oil counter on it, and as long as it has four or more oil counters, it gets plus two plus oh, and it can't be blocked, so it's a three three unblockable threat. So why did I pick this card? Well, I think that it's good at early defense in this format, uh, because toxic creatures are rather on the smallish side. Um, big creatures cost quite a lot of mana. So I think it can keep me alive for the first couple of turns by blocking the 2-2s, by blocking the 1-1s, uh, keep me also from being too much poisoned early. Um, so yeah, uh, that's a good knock. That's a good thing in favor of it. Now it's potentially powerful because a 3-3 unblockable threat uh, ends game quite rapidly. Um, it needs some work. So there is things to build around it. And that's also something I find pleasant that um, I think that uh, uh, the fact that it needs some work uh, touches my creative side and I really want to see how can I make that card work because four oil counters is a lot. Four spells, that's not, not every game you're going to cast four spells. So probably I want to do it with fewer spells than four uh, to, to bring it online. But more or less, I think that looking at the spoiler, it is slightly supported uh, because it's part of the spell synergy in red, green, in, in, in red blue. Uh, and also there are similar cards present in the format that use similar mechanics. So I can pile those synergies on top of each other. And while trying to build a deck around Icar Synthesizer, I'm also going to sort of by accident build a deck that is good with other uh, types of um, cards that use the same kind of ability that have whenever you cast a non-creature spell, put an oil counter on, uh, on, on something. So by building a Nikkor Synthesizer deck, I'm also building a deck that will be good with those other cards. Uh, so first step is to find cards that do similar things because I want to have multiples of um, ways that my synergy is going to benefit from, not only that one Nikkor Synthesizer. I don't want to build like all the weight of the deck is on that poor uh, Icor synthesizer. I want to have a diverse strategy, but uses kind of similar mechanics. So there is a bunch of cards in uh, blue and red that have that kind of ability. Icor synthesizer, importantly, is a common. And it's important that this synergy thing will exist at common because you will get more access to it. You can get like four Icor synthesizers if no one is interested in them in your pod, uh, if you are in the right pod. Uh, and maybe you can get some other common uh, things. So one, one thing that I have here is Soulblade Scamp. One, so red mana, a 1-1 one, one haste creature. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, you put an oil counter on it, remove an oil counter, tap remove an oil counter from it. Uh, it deals one damage to each opponent. Um, so it's like a very super early threat. I can play it early, um, which is great because if I, I have it in my opening hand, I will definitely play it uh, before I start casting any non-creature spells. So fantastic uh, option. And it can maybe push two damage early, and later it can stay back and uh, slowly ping the opponent. Uh, you know, I'm happy with my one drop doing four or five damage. That's absolutely great for it because quarter of the life was done, uh, quarter of the needed uh, life total was reduced by like a common one-one haste creature. So that's like a decent card that I will, might might be thinking about putting in the kind of a deck and has similar synergies um, as the uh, Acor synthesizer. Then there's the Troller Drake. We talked about it, a three mana flying one one. 
uh, gets plus one plus one for each oil counter on it. Um, and whenever you cast a non-creature spell, you put an oil counter on Trailer Drake. As I said, I want to speed up getting my Ichor synthesizer to the four oil counters. Well, Trailer Drake, if I speed it up and I put multiple counters on it, it becomes a very big threat very quickly. It's also evasive. So, you know, if I can put four counters on Troller Drake instead of my Icor Synthesizer, I'm ending up with a 5-5 Flyer, which is arguably better than a 3-3 Unblockable. Uh, so, yeah, cool card to think about it in this deck. Um, Mercurial Spell Dancer, that's a rare, but uh, we talked about it already. 2-1 uh, Unblockable, which, again, fits with my theme of I don't want to be blocked, I want to be very evasive. Uh, whenever you cast a non-creature spell, put an oil counter on it, and it can copy a spell. I want to cast spells, therefore copying a spell is great for me. Also, it gets um, um, it gets the oil counters for me casting those spells, so it's sort of like a both payoff, enabler, and everything in one. Uh, also, evasive threat for, uh, for what I'm doing. So yeah, that looks like a great card for building my deck. And there's the Serum Core Chimera, we talked about it as well. A four mana flyer, two four. Uh, whenever you cast a non-creature spell, put an oil counter on Serum Core of Chimera, and then you can remove three oil counters from it. And then uh, you draw a card. You might discard something, and when you do that, it deals three damage to target creature or planeswalker. Uh, and if I don't, I just drew a card, which is great. So again, if I want to put multiple counters on things, probably pro proliferate will be. Uh, uh, part of the uh, solution. And if Proliferate is part of the solution, I put multiple counters, not only on the Troller Drake, not only on the Mercurial Spell Dancer, but also on the Serum Core Chimera, which will in turn will let me draw more cards, which in turn will let me play more spells, which in turn will activate all those synergies. So yeah, uh, quite cool. I'm starting to look at those cards and try to position them in the deck. Maybe some will make it, maybe some will not make it, uh, maybe, my perfect vision of the deck will contain some, but I will uh, sometimes just uh, maybe draw like a five Soulblade Scamp deck when I just like, my only plan is play as many of them as early as possible and then ping opponent for free every turn uh, and cast a spell and ping them for free again and that kind of stuff. So maybe there will be like diverse plans that I will keep in mind, but I will have the optimal uh, in the foreground and then there will be the plan B, uh, what happens when I open zero synthesizers, but many Soulblade scams, maybe I'll slightly change it, for example. Um, so fourth step of my planning is usually identifying the weaknesses. Um, I think that it's important to look at where the problems are with the deck, because once you identify the problem, you can start thinking, okay, what do I need to make that problem less of a problem? And if you make the problem less of a problem, if you find the cards that are very important to, uh, to, to, um, to, uh, to um, plug the holes that you have in your strategy, then you can actually come up with a brilliant archetype and uh, with the brilliant uh, way of the deck that you're trying to play. So in this case, I identified three big weaknesses. It's like the Acor Synthesizer is pretty slow to go online. That's a problem because Tempo decks, they want to put a real clock on board. They really want to focus on um, both disturbing the strategy of your opponent, but at the same time, they need to threaten with something more than a 1-3. So that Icor Synthesizer must go online quickly. Uh, second weakness, the deck needs high non-creature density because you want to cast non-creature spells. And that's a problem because if you have high non-creature density, uh, you will not build up enough board presence. And because you don't build up enough board presence, again, your clock is slightly slow. So there needs to be a solution to that problem. And third, that deck may be bad in the late game because Tempo decks don't age well. I mean, if you didn't deal like 12 damage early, 
uh, you might never do that. Uh, so we need ways of um, we need some ways of, of making sure that we either have a solution of what happens when we go to the late game, or we build a deck in such a way that late game will barely ever happen. God, talking is hard. Okay. So step five is obviously, since we identified the weaknesses, we try to minimize them. Um, so first weakness was that it's pretty slow to go online. And I look at the cards that we have here and I identify several cards that um, um, help me. First, free from flash. Uh, the instant that target creature gets plus two, plus two until end of turn, and you put two oil counters on it. This means that I can put three counters on the Icor Synthesizer instantly just by paying one mana. Which means that if I played one more non-creature spell beforehand, this goes from being a 1-3 with one oil counter into a 5-5 five, five unblockable with um, four oil counters. And this can be like a super explosive start when I play this on turn, uh, uh, Icor Synthesizer on turn two, um, Turn three, I play some sort of spell, uh, non-creature spell, and, and and this, I swing for five. And from then on, I have a five-turn clock just from that one ink or synthesizer that the opponent must uh, deal with. And if I'm on the play, that is probably a clock that is sufficient if my deck is built around disturbing their strategies. If I have some counter spells, or if I have some uh, bounce spells, or if I have some removal, uh, they are not going to be... I'm not going to make it easy for them to, uh, um, to race me. Um, Second thing is um, Experimental Augury. Uh, that's a two mana instant. Look at the top three cards of your library, put one of them into your hand, and the rest on the bottom of your library in any order proliferate. So first of all, it's a spell, which already puts one counter. Then second counter comes from proliferate. I'm halfway there. And then I can select one of the three cards, which will give me a huge choice of what I have, uh, which hopefully will allow me to make it online next turn that I can do. Uh, so a great spell uh, that will uh, especially when I have multiples of those Icor uh, synthesizers on board. This can be really threatening because I have like two of them on board. Uh, I put in total of uh, four all counters. I look for another proliferate spell and the next turn I put both of them online. I start swinging for six. Great. Um, then we have things like Volt Charge, which allow me to slow down the opponent because Volt Charge kills a creature while at the same proliferating and putting an extra counter on my Icor synthesizer. So basically, this acts not only as the ramp to how fast I put oil counters on my Icor Synthesizer, but also slows down the opponent quite actively, uh, therefore giving me more time. Tempo is all about stretching time and killing their 3-3 uh, while making my thing closer to become a 3-3 unblockable is exactly the way of, um, uh, of getting there. And as I told you already in the first slides about the uh, archetype, Icor Synthesizer itself is helping me with uh, giving me extra time because 1-3 is probably good enough to block for a couple of turns and, and soak up some damage. Okay, the deck needs high non-creature density. And that is always a problem of spells deck that will often fly close to the sun with having just enough threats or not enough threats. Um, and I have some plan. Like, first of all, there is for Mirrodin equipment in this set. And these are creatures that are not creatures when you cast them. So I can play the, my Barbed Butterfist. I can play some other um, equipment from uh, with Formiridin in this uh, archetype. And I can actually put creatures on board without casting creature spells and uh, with activating the um, um, abilities of things that trigger on non-creature spells. There is the Meldweb Strider, the vehicle that I mentioned before, which also is sort of technically a creature because it... Um, 
uh, can crew itself once. Um, I also play a lot of proliferate, so maybe it can, will be able to crew itself multiple times. But if I cast it, I cast it as a non-creature spell, which is great, because then again, I can increase the creature density in my deck, threat density in my deck, while at the same time uh, being able to trigger all those non-creature uh, spells. And last, Experimental Augury also looks at the top three cards of my library, except for proliferating. And because of that, I have a good selection, which means that if I drew a hand where I have lots of spells but few threats, I can play the Experimental Augury and hopefully find a creature through that because I have quite some card selection using that card and therefore will be able to maybe find my Acre Synthesizer for the next turn. All right. Um, last part, it may be bad in a late game. And as I said, one of the best solutions that it may be bad in a late game is never to lead to a late game. But if you want to be a, build a deck that is more resilient in the late game, there are a couple of ways of doing that. Um, one is uh, playing. I hope that this thing is in the set. Is it? it it's it. It is in the main booster set. No, it's not only one of those special cards. Uh, but you can put a bomb like Ovika Enigma Goliath. That's a seven mana six six with flying with ward, pay free life. Whenever you cast a non creature spell, create X one one red per X and goblin creature tokens where X is the mana value of that spell, they gain haste until end of turn. So you just generate like tons of goblins. Um, it's a, an example of a bomb. There are plenty of bombs in this format, but uh, having bombs is a good way of having a late game plan. I already have good card selection. So if I get a bit flooded, um, I can cast my um, experimental augury. And, um, and because I do that, I can actually find my bombs and then I can actually have a strong late game. Uh, other thing that I can do is that this card is based on the uh, density of spells. If I have spells that draw multiple cards, like the Surgeon's Inside, the five mana draw three proliferate, uh, which again is sort of on plan, I can have slightly better reach because maybe I will not like uh, overcome my opponent with something big, but I might just get enough cards to um, stop their strategy uh, to the extent where my uh, unblockable threats are going to win. And of course, not being good in late game means that opponent is playing big things and nothing deals better with big things than counter spells. Uh, so there is a spell like Reject Imperfection, uh, which is a counter for three mana sort of cancel. If the spell that you counter will have mana value three or less, you proliferate. So it is still on plan. You can counter something smaller and uh, proliferate your oil counters. But if you end up in the late game, this can stop them from playing that big thing that was supposed to win them the game. And you can slowly take over with your unblockables. Um, there is one big weakness that I sort of identified, um, but I couldn't find a solution. And that's also important to admit to yourself that, you know, there are some things I can't deal with it. Um, I mean, my creatures are small and I have few of them and removal exists. And if opponents kill enough of my stuff, I will have a problem with finishing the game. Uh, and I didn't find a good solution to that, barring maybe putting some alternative win cons, like uh, maybe the mill artifact for one that um, comes with two oil counters. If I proliferate enough, I might get it to like five, six oil counters and then mill them for six. Uh, as a sort of like an alternative win con, but there is no hexproof blue card in this set, and it would be great to have one. Like preferably two mana target creature you control gains hexproof proliferate. That would be a perfect spell for my deck. Unfortunately, there is not, so um, it's hard to protect my creatures. Uh, I will have to hope that I generate enough value through them that um, they will survive and maybe counter some of the uh, removal spells. And the last thing that is left for that is to build a deck and. Um, 
This, of course, is a skeleton. I have no idea how it will work. I have no idea how it will uh, play. But um, I came up with uh, having seven creatures in the deck. Four of them are Icor Synthesizers. One is Mercurial Spell Dancer, the two one that cannot be blocked. Uh, one Troller Drake and one Serum Core Chimera. Now, this is like a maximum synergy kind of creature base when all these things uh, trigger on me casting non-creature spells. I have seven creatures, which means that the rest of my deck, um, uh, that's 17, are non-creature spells. So I have plenty of value to, to, to trigger their abilities. Um, so then I have the, all the non-creature spells. I have two free from flash, the two plus two plus two, put two oil counters, combat trick, uh, hex gold slashes, uh, the um, deal two damage to target creature or four if it has toxic um, uh, spell, very cheap way of dealing with their, um, with their early aggression to stopping them from having dynamic starts and therefore uh, giving me time to make my synthesizers online. Uh, surgical skull bomb, uh, that's the blue skull bomb that can bounce something. Again, I play it as a spell. Later, I can activate it to bounce something, to buy myself time, draw a card. Um, skull bomb itself, when I have a, a creature on board, can be um, can trigger the all counters from my uh, from my from my other creatures. I have a bring the ending. That's a sort of quench. Uh, I'm not having any toxic, so it will forever be a quench in this deck. But I don't plan for the late game, so for me, counter something unless opponent plays two is probably just enough. Uh, two experimental auguries. Did uh, look at the top three cards. Pick one. Uh, Barb Butterfist, one of the equipments that is a non-creature creature. Hexgold Halberd, that's another two-drop uh, for Mirrodin equipment. I have two thrills of possibility to filter if I flood or something, or if I have something that is absolutely useless and draw some cards. And uh, while I'm doing, put oil counters on my things. One Reject Imperfection, uh, two Volt Charges and Vivisurgeon's Insight. Uh, Again, adding to removal, uh, adding to counter spell suite, and then adding to the card draw. Vivi Surgeon's Insight is my top end, basically, for five mana, uh, draw three cards, proliferate, uh, maybe later in the game to replenish what I have. And it's important also to think about the uh, mana base. I have 16 lands in this deck because I'm relatively cheap, uh, but I still want to be sure that I'm casting my stuff. One Terramorphic Expanse to fix mana. I don't have that many one drops in this version, so I can easily play a tap land on turn one. Um, and also it, fil it filters my library from lands so I can have more spells later. And I have two of the spheres. I have one red sphere and one blue sphere. You can sacrifice those to draw a card later in the game, uh, which again, sort of increases my spell density because those lands, after I hit like six, I don't need them anymore. I can sacrifice them and um, um, draw a card and, and hopefully draw some more gas. So basically this is the deck, this is the process I'm going through um, uh, in my head in order to come up with those subtype of skeletons. I thought it would be useful to share it because that way it gives you tools to try to figure out your archetypes and we need more people to figure out archetypes uh, because I think that lots of color combinations, uh, even with 17 lands, even with many people playing, are maybe slightly underexplored. And, and it would be great if they would be uh, explored to a higher extent. Um, right. Just under two hours. I'm, 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 I'm outperforming myself. But uh, we reached the end of the podcast. I would like to thank the 17 lands team. Um, Varelmus Nomer, Hululu, Grant Wu, and Ale Ballini, who is doing uh, 
amazing work in uh, getting every uh, set online in recent uh, sets. I would like to thank uh, Fake Jake Brown, who will help me to release it as a podcast and always has and always is receptive and actively trying to push me in the right directions. So thank him for that. I would like to thank um, some people that I rarely thank, but I really, uh, well, they really help me in my life a lot. Uh, and that's the Scryfall team. Uh, every set when it's released, most of the stats I do on the cards, I use Scryfall a lot because of the functionality and speed and in usefulness and awesomeness. So, you know, send some love to the Scryfall team. I'm, I'm a patron and I think that, you know, uh, even a one-time donation will probably uh, help them survive. And without Scryfall, I don't know how magic can work. Of course, thanks to MTGA Zone uh, for uh, the sponsorship of this podcast, even though uh, I'm not doing much um, in terms of writing articles and um, that their patience is uh, in, uh, incredible. So thank them for that. Uh, and thanks to SSQ and Mana Junkie for the music uh, that I use in the podcast version of it. And with that, I'll see you next week when we will have a second part of the primer, this time focusing on color pairs and how do I see them. <laughs>